Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 78. Today's guest is Russell Brakefield. He's on the line and will be with us in just a moment. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995. That's almost 26 years, and we are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry because you're here with us listening tonight, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Tell all your friends uh, uh, that you like this, and um, tell the computers that you like this because that's how stuff spreads around the internet. We appreciate when you do that. Um, now, today's guest, like I mentioned, is Russell Brakefield. He had a poem in Poets Respond um, back in, I think, early December it was, um, about that feeling of um, the coronavirus being almost over which um, is still not over yet, but you could feel it. You can kind of sense it with the vaccines coming. It felt good to write a poem about that. I love that poem, and he was on for Poet Respond Live. Then I looked up his book, and his newest book is uh, Field Recordings. I put it on screen uh, right here. But uh, Field Recordings from uh, Wayne State University Press. Uh, this beautiful cover and a really fascinating subject matter with this book. This is... Um, um, I'll, read, I'll read his bio really quick, then we'll bring him on. This is uh, Russell Brakefield received an MFA in poetry from the University of Michigan's Helen Zell Writers Program. His work has appeared in Indiana Review, New Orleans Review, Poet Lore, Crab Orchard Review, and many other great places. He's received fellowships from the University of Michigan, Musical Society, the Vermont Studio Center, and National Parks Department. And uh, his newest book right here is Field Recordings. And here he is, Russell Brakefield. Hey, Russ, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. My pleasure. Do you want to start us out with a poem? Yeah, sure. Um, I thought I would start by reading uh, the last poem in the book. Uh, It's called Origins, so I thought it'd be a good place to start. Origins. In the beginning, all art was audible. This accounts for the sea and the shell, the cupped hands of echoes, ears held against the gravel ground. In Chavez and El Castillo, the stomp of hooves. In Gatuat, the scrape of praising palms. Pictograms still play tight decadas in the Cumberland Plateau. Every man's condition is a solution in hieroglyphic. Every man's a shadow song. Across cultures, cave paintings hang in concentrated stains at the points of best acoustic resonance. Stone and time hides a sonic canvas, an atlas of first notation, where the pulse clinging to the rocks renews itself forever. That was the last poem in the book, Origins, from uh, Field Recordings. So, so let's start out just by talking about this book, which I, I find such a fascinating subject matter. Um, how did you get interested in, um, in Alan Lomax and in this um, tradition of, um, of, of folk music? Yeah, uh, well, I grew up in Michigan, so Midwest is gonna was gonna be in there no matter what. Um, but I also was a musician, am a musician, and uh, I played in a, a little folk band called Winter Sessions for for a bunch of years, and um, it was really fun in my twenties touring around Michigan and you know playing bars, terrible bars, great bars, coffee shops, street corners, things like that. Um, and so I have that sort of musical background and also just a, a music fan. Um, I like, you know, contemporary folk and bluegrass music, but I, I'm also really interested and started to become more interested when I was looking into this project with where those songs and stories came from. Um, and then I sort of stumbled on this. You know, I knew a little bit about Alan Lomax. 
Um, you know, if, if anyone doesn't know, Alan Lomax was this folk music collector and a, an ethnomusicologist, and he was working in the earlier part of the 20th century, driving around collecting music to preserve for the Library of Congress and um, sometimes for record companies too. But you've likely heard heard a, a song that was found by Alan Lomax. He discovered people like like Lead Belly, things like that. But um, so I knew a little bit about him. But then I stumbled onto some of his writings. I was looking at some of his writings, and he happened to do this road trip around Michigan in the late 30s, uh, collecting. He was working for the Library of Congress, and uh, he he was supposed to be doing like a Great Lakes Basin tour. So he was supposed to be in Ohio and Wisconsin and all these places. But uh, he got to Michigan and started looking at the music there and, and was sort of overwhelmed by he started in Detroit in you know, 1938, and even that, there, I think he was like, oh, no, I'm going to need some more time than I've allotted myself. So, uh, yeah, so then he did this big loop in his in his old uh, car around Michigan collecting. He had this big, huge, like, trunk-sized acetate disc recorder in the back of his car. Uh, and so he would kind of just pull up places and pay people or, or buy them drinks to, to get them to play their songs for him. And um, all of that stuff is is in the Library of Congress archives. And you can go, now they have it all digitized, which is amazing. So I started just listening through it. And uh, yeah, it was just kind of crazy to follow some of those same routes that I, I, I knew already. But to do it alongside Alan Lomax collecting all of these songs that you know like like most of his stuff would be sort of the the bones the foundations of a lot of the the musical traditions of the next you know 100 years so and, and these are people who uh, you know weren't recording right they were playing right. live but there was no record of it so if he didn't do that there would be no record of all these people right absolutely yeah these are i mean working class people bar rooms back rooms card games uh weddings you know he would crash weddings and funerals and things like that um yeah and so i was really interested in that too you know just this idea of not only like how we hold on to you know how how songs and and poems i guess to come into the world um more naturally maybe or through that process of uh you know uh, translation you know the sort of oral tradition of passing songs on to each other and and also the sort of working classness of that, you know, Michigan. Um, I, I was interested in that stuff already, right? You know, my dad was a carpenter, and um, I, I'm just interested in that and what that means—the sort of Rust Belt mentality—and then to see how much music sort of ran through the lives of people who were not professional musicians, who were just, you know, getting by. Uh, I, I really was invested in that sort of right away. You can hear it on the recordings too. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a real texture to the recordings. It's not, you know, they're, they're not clean. There's people, you know, doing stuff in the background, which which I loved about those. Yeah, yeah, it's just such an important piece of history to mm-hmm. chronicle. And if he if he didn't, nobody else would have, which is so amazing. Uh, yeah. Do you want to read a few more uh, poems to keep keep sort of set the mood a little bit? Sure. Um, well, maybe I'll read just a couple chunks of the Sound Lomax section since we we're talking about it. Um, uh, you know, one of the other things I was I was thinking about too. I mean, there's there's all of these positive aspects of, of Lomax's work, right, that he retained and, and gave us all of this inter- interesting music um, and that those those recordings exist for us. But I was also thinking a little bit about, I guess, what it would be to be the one that chooses what gets held on to, you know, what, what makes it into the 
into the culture. Um, and so I think this big poem, which is on page 37, it's called Field Recordings, the title, title track, so to speak. Um, this is sort of him, following him on that journey. And it, it's sort of a, a persona poem written from maybe his perspective um, and, and grappling with some of those. This is a really long poem, so I'll just read a few little chunks here. Um, so this is Field Recordings, and it starts with a, a epigraph from Lomax way up in Calumet City, Michigan. It says, I'm, I'm getting such grand stuff, I can't afford to leave. Uh, that's in August of 1938. I'm making a verb of epigraph so that my dreams embark in engravings. This morning, upon waking, slow light and a hymn held just off my tongue, a parable rung with sleep, a song about white doves. And then the tower of sound behind me stuck husks of the neighbors I've known, a thousand times a wife's tale, a thousand times a myth sewn through. The stories I'm told stick like reels below my rib cage. Paramount has scouts picking the plains and south from the blues on back. I've painted myself muddy on the map of all this. I pick leavings, leave smudge shadows across the country like war paint, like a fire anchored to a passing field. A tale of the five sisters. Each lays lake into the palm of the next, and between hangs a cradle, a lung, a corner untouched. My father was lucky to settle south, best not to know the cooling kettle set down here in the Midwest. Yeah, I'll stop there. Okay. Yeah, th th that gives a sense of style in the book, too. There's a, um, and I felt like reading this book, I felt like, um, like like I ha was having a dream of a Ken Burns film or something. There's this like dream quality and there's this history too. So there's a, like, it, it's not, um, you know, it, it's very um, disjointed a little bit. Like it, it's, it leaps from different things and very image, image based like a dream is. Um, and talk a little bit about, about the style and, and how you approach the subject matter in that way. Cause it's an interesting, um, it's not what I expected. I have to say when I picked up the book, I expected much more of like a historical account. And this is more of like this, like, really like a dream you know like it's like sort of if you if you went back in time and like inhabited the body in a way as he was like drifting through these towns it's an interesting way to write poetry sure. so what were you getting at with that yeah totally well uh definitely a, a big ken burns fan nerd so i'll take that um <laughs> but yeah i think you know there, there was definitely something happening when i was writing it where i was immersing myself in the writings and the the songs and thinking about it so i was hearing a lot of the sort of texture of the place and i but i to your point i think i was definitely overlapping perhaps myself onto the poem in ways that i was i was able to do as i've said and so i think that maybe you know that created a sort of space where i could write about it from more inside his perspective um even though uh you know i i've never I never talked to Alan Lomax, <laughs> obviously, but, but yeah, I, I think that, and I also just think like there's something about the, there was something about the way that mu music is involved here too. I, I was just so like intrigued, like about what it would do to a person to have to be alone in a car and then like going in and out of these semi-private spaces and, you know, wrapping those stories and songs up into your experience right so that seems to me a little dreamy anyways mm -hmm. uh 
you know, I think you would be maybe in the middle of the state being like, where did I, what did I do last night? What did I do the night before? You know, when did I get thrown out of that bar? When did I record those, you know, finished tunes? Right. So I think that seemed like it, it maybe, you know, Lomax might've been a little bit more analytical about that or something or more precise in his approach. But, um, but there is just a warmth and a sort of, uh, a lot of peopling to the the recordings that I think gave me gave me the sense of that of sort of hovering above it all. Um, so I don't know how that quite translates stylistically. You know, I think um, the other thing that I, I that started happening as I was writing this poem, I think interestingly is that my language just kind of compressed a little bit, um, and I think part of that comes from sort of a diary kind of style. Um, mm-hmm. And part of it comes from just trying to weave a lot of this really interesting musical language into the piece. Um, and I really liked how that was going. It felt sort of more, um, again, like there was more texture to it. Uh, so that was sort of a happy accident, I guess, mm-hmm. of the process. Um, but, you know, I, I often look to that kind of thing in poems too, the sort of, you know, syntax and diction work that, uh, makes you feel, you know, the types of things that you're trying to convey. Um, Would you say this is typical of your style or is it something that, that's more focused on this book? The, the poem we published is pretty dreamy too, I'd say. Yeah, I think it is probably pretty typical of my style. I do think that, that there's some language, again, I think some compression that happened in the field recordings title poem. Um, and again, the sort of ability to kind of patchwork around things in a way because you were it was sort of a journal journal style or diary kind of style but yeah I mean I almost always start in images and um in really tactile places even for the Lomax poem and this is maybe why it's not as much of a documentary style um I mean I I love love those sort of documentary poet books um um, C.D. Wright is one of my favorite writers and she does that stuff but uh, but yeah, I think I always start with image and, and, and story. I think I'm drawn to like the things, the action and the image of, of a piece first, um, even before I know what I'm writing about. And so I, I think that certainly probably cr- creates the, the starting point for, for the poems. Yeah. Um, um, Carla Schwartz over here says, I love the music uh, language in the two poems, the music language. I liked how she puts or musical language. And yeah. uh, it is, it's a very musical, it's, it's perfect for the, the theme of the book. Um, yeah. Do you want to read a couple more poems to, um, for sure. Yeah. Keep, keep going. Yeah. I'll, uh, um, this is kind of on track. I'll, uh, I'll read the first poem in the book and then maybe we'll go from there. Um, this is called the way we learn to sing at the bar again, my back to the band. I'm listening for the quieter animal inside my body instead. Outside, what passes from field to rot and back to snow, the ribs of March are kicking through. And there are beasts bent across these hills that fill the night with praise for the natural order. Who the older mammal here and who newer? Their howls scrape the black screen like a symphony warming. Each voice strays the pack but is prepared to collapse together to sing the length of history's body. A slip of land beyond the city's edge is threaded with ancient shadows, animals savage and famished and put down like black patches on the snow as though they fell and their shapes in falling opened room enough in the sky for the stars to form. 
Um, that was the way we learned to sing. Let's do another the one. The way too. we learned to sing. Yeah, I'll just read the next one. I'll kind of keep going here. Okay. Um, this one's called This is America and We Are Boys. This is on page five. This is America and We Are Boys. We have been wild for so long now, boyish and red with reminders of the importance of acquisition, a knife against the apple skin, the thin cycle of street lamps on pavement. Hounds are blessing the backs of buildings we don't know how to leave, blessing our exhaust breath, ghost hounds back for the scraps. Choose this vice or choose that, we say, and count a tornado of slow concessions, hives, inhibitives, acid reflux. Choose this vice more than that, we say, and find one heavy blanket to be enough. When, in the summer, we build a raft of foam and rope and bend it into a thin river, we know the statement we are making. This is America, and we are boys slowly tiring into our fathers. Our bodies are shorn and hung with sly shadows. Our bodies hope against the crack of armchair, thick lung, hot chest. The river, once dry, then revived, this is a beauty we recognize and destroy. A diorama, slack edge of time, not knowing what to do with even this. Just enough rope to keep ourselves alive. Yeah, another excellent poem. Those are two. Uh, this is this is America and we are boys. And I love that line. There's so many great lines in your writing. This is America and we are boys slowly tiring into our fathers. I love that line. Um, Thanks. And that's one thing that the uh, the description on the back talks about is um, is is an exploration of masculinity, which is something you don't see in poetry um, too often these days. It's not something that's um, that's I don't know popular as far as poetry goes. Um, uh, what makes you um, want to write and approach that subject matter? Yeah, well, I'm I'm a guy, I guess, and I the Midwest is part of this too. I think you know, uh, growing up again, sort of working class Midwest rural-ish. Um, I think there's a lot of toxic masculinity, to use a sort of buzzy phrase, but there is a lot of ways in which, you know, the masculinity that gets passed down in those situations um, is gross, right? It's just like not not it. It's not the thing. Um, but there's also some other things that like, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that, that I, I got from not only my dad, but other men in my life that were really good things and really interesting things. And there's just a way where, as with most things, right, it's like, this is, you know, good or bad. It's not that, right? And so trying to sort of open up a conversation, I guess, about um, what it means to grow up as a boy in the Midwest, um, in, you know, rural Midwest, I think I was interested in that. Um, and also it's just my experience, you know, and, and how, how I do that, um, how I did that, how I lived that. So, uh, I don't think I sat down to write a book about, you know, masculinity in the Midwest or anything like that, but it certainly is part of my experience and I'm writing a lot about, you know, family and, and upbringing and, um, and things like that in this book. So, uh, I think that sort of, that sort of came out as a, as a, a predominant theme amongst the music stuff. Yeah, having a son myself who's six, I do worry about um, the idea that toxic masculinity and that whole concept, which is important, um, sort of overshadows whatever, what, what would you call non-toxic masculinity? Um, <laughs> right, yeah. You know, the, the things that are good, which I, maybe, I don't know, what, what traits do you think are good about masculinity? Just to, so, 
I don't know. It's an yeah. interesting thing we don't we don't talk about. But I would say no, like totally. like um sort of responsibility or something mm-hmm. like that. That's the kind of the genre like taking yeah. care of things. It, you and know. that's where I think that at fuzziness I, I wanted to get into, you know, because I remember my dad teaching me to push a broom, right? And yeah, like, exactly. That's like, what no, I'm this is about, how yeah. you have to do it. And like, it's felt so annoying to me at the time. But I think if I said that there's a way that you can like, write that scene up or put that image down where that seems like, a, or it can get painted as like something negative, but it certainly wasn't for me, right? It did, you know, instill in me a sense of responsibility and community and but also all the other things that went to this book, which is like a love of like curiosity and music and um, nature and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, you know, the other thing in here, too, I guess, is that I think some of the things that this book, I guess I was trying to look at was just like the cycles of how things are passed down and passed on. Right. I talked about that a little bit with the Lomax stuff. And that's not just for music. Right. I mean, th- you know, how we deal with what we're given influence, we might call it in the creative conversation, I think is, was one of the points of, uh, of entry for me in some of those more like family oriented poems. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you, um, get into writing poetry? You mentioned you were touring as a musician. Um, Oh, oh and let, you know, touring is a well, strong maybe not too. You're, you're, <laughs> you're performing, performing. Yeah, as a no, definitely performing. We had we had a lot of fun, but yeah, I um, well, I've always written. I didn't really know you could be a writer when I was younger. I I loved writing. Always loved writing. Um, I think I was studying like biology in college and mm-hmm. failing out, um, playing music, but really loving my poetry classes. Uh, and I, I went to a reading. It was just a faculty reading. Um, it was this poet named Mark Yakich, a uh, great poet. But I was just looking at them, you know, the, the poets up there, they were exploring interesting ideas and writing. And I was like, oh, you could, maybe you could do that for a living, right? Um, and so, yeah, it was just a, a couple really good teachers in college that sort of said, you know, you're doing something good. Um, you know, you seem to have some sort of interest here and some sort of talent here. Uh, and they sort of shepherd, shepherded me towards some some other writing spaces. And then I found this whole community, you know. I was saying to you earlier just, you know, how much I appreciate the, the sort of community space you're, you're creating here. And I think that was the other thing that I really loved about it as a younger person. You know, other like-minded weirdos that, um, you know, we could talk about poems and, and music and all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, it's really a great space, and, and that's what what draws me to poetry too. Is just it's a place where you can think, kind of, you know, and yeah. just explore the world in this sort of I don't know way that you don't get other places, which is what mm-hmm. in in college too. It's what draw me to it. Um, do you still per- perform? Do you still play music, or um, are you just focused on poetry now? Yeah, a little bit. I'm much better at writing than I am at music, which is more a comment about my music than my writing. But um, so I don't do it as much, but I still, you know. Um, I still play here and there. Um, you have the banjo. I got a banjo right behind me. So, uh, yeah, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's more of a cathartic or sort of social thing right now than it, than it was in the past. Um, it's a good, good way to sort of switch out of the writing brain, you know, if you're stuck. Um, but yeah, I I still love music and love to play it. Well, uh, let me say if anybody has any questions uh, for Russell Breakfield, um, please pass them along. I watch Facebook and YouTube. Uh, I don't watch anywhere else. 
Um, people are talking about the, the endings. We'll ask them about the endings later. But let's hear a couple more poems first. And if you have any questions, yep. they'll leave them in the chat window and I'll pass them along. But uh, let's, let's do a couple more poems. Sure. Um, so I think uh, I want to I read this poem called Mackinac Island because um, this we were talking a little about about you know masculinity and um, this this poem I think does that thing it's trying to think a little bit about those you know legacies and and things like that so this is on page 63 Mackinac Island um, and there's a starts with a really problematic um, quote that's from this folklorist in the late 1800s uh, it says it's no more possible to predicate the conduct of an Indian than that of a woman um, and if you've never been to Mackinac Island, this is a place that you go to when you're a kid. It's like a place they take you up to, and there's fudge and cap guns. Um, but it also has, as with many places, uh, you know, a long history of just problematic, you know, colonial interest there. And uh, and so it's interesting, you know, when you're a kid to see that stuff and not understand it until later, just like a lot of the stories we're told that we, we um, parse out on our own after that. So. Mackinac Island. In the picture, my younger brother hangs slack from the stocks, his hands wrung by wooden shackles like he were made for that time, unlikely colonial cap tilted on his tiny hinged-in head. The island flattened to a dream map for us then, fudge and high walls, cap guns hung like meat from the shop stalls, and just beyond, my mother's hand cut sun from her eyes, my father behind the lens. Not, to, not content to live among a crate of plastic bows and arrows, the swaying commerce of violence, she has been made villain by her objection, made more foreign to our little boy hearts. In another photo, in a schoolroom diorama, she leans against a roll-top desk, shadowed by the underlit fort. I stand before her with a mock musket peering wildly down the barrel at my would-be savage captor. The pitch from the log wall has stained her neck and hair. She splays her digits out across a desk's surface, capsized by silence, and traces scars cut deep into the dreamwood. Yeah, and that's another poem with a, with a great ending. Let's just talk about, about that, too, because um, Nivedita Karthik mentioned endings and um gail hemmen mentioned your endings this is all you know spontaneous people um kristen ryberg i agree great endings a diorama um so so how do you go about writing a poem um do you do you revise a lot do you write toward an ending what is your process like and how do you get those great endings that that people are talking about yeah i usually i, I do a lot of revision um it takes me a long time to write a poem i usually write uh write something out. And again, I'm often starting with, with questions or images, um, or situation. Like in that case, maybe I'm starting with a photograph or something. Um, but the endings almost always come way later. Uh, and so maybe that's, you know, a way of telling myself that the poem is, is getting close is when I've arrived at an ending that feels, um, substantial. Uh, you know, I like, I like to tell my students, both in poems and, and in short stories that like you should arrive at an ending and you should be both sort of super surprised or delighted by the ending, but it also should be sort of an inevitable place to arrive at. 
maybe an inevitable place that you hadn't anticipated. Mm -hmm. um, not that I can always pull that off, but I think that's <laughs> yeah, a good Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, like that's what play. it should do, but how do you get there? You know, do, yeah, you, yeah. do you like write until you get there and then, mm -hmm. and then you, you notice or um, is yeah. that how it works usually? Yeah, yeah. I think there's something about rhythm too for me, if I'm being honest. I think like some of my, my poems kind of do a, a rhythmic dip at the end, which can be really good. Um, it can also be a trap, right, where I'm like, ooh, this sounds like the end, um, but it's actually not. And then I have to go back and think about the progress of the poem a little bit more. Um, but yeah, it's usually a place where I'm, I'm working through, I'm working through, I'm working through, and then I arrive at something that seems, again, sort of like that moment that I've been teaching about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's when I know at least I'm close to, to something. Um, not always, right? But an ending is a good place to, to start ending, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so Richard, you, you mentioned rhythm, which is perfect, because uh, Richard Westheimer asked in the chat, um, do you find that the role of the banjo finds its way into the rhythm of your poems? Do you find you moving your head to the hidden beat as you read your poems aloud? <laughs> well, this is where you insert banjo jokes, I think. But um, I don't know about the rhythm of the banjo. But uh, but yeah, for sure, I think definitely music just in general certainly um, influences the writing. So much so sometimes that I'm writing more of a, from a, from, as I said, sort of from a rhythmic perspective. And then thinking about the language content of the poem after Um yeah, so definitely informs the the work. Uh, do you let me? Do you um, find yourself tapping your feet as you read your own poems? Because I've noticed one of the first things I noticed twenty years ago, being interested in poetry, is that the poets I liked hearing most had a movement. Like they were like they didn't even con couldn't control it, but they were kind of dancing a little bit as they read. And sure. uh, I've noticed that throughout the years that, that you know if you if you looked under the table, I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be tapping your foot. Yeah, I don't know, maybe, you know, unconsciously, subconsciously, for sure. But yeah, I mean, you know, you can hear when I read, I certainly sort of fall into that. Um, and all, you know, the poets I love to read, too. That's the other thing. It's not just the banjo or whatever. A lot of the poets I like to read are, are drawn to or are doing that work that really, like, you know, musicality is, is really important to me as a reader. And so I'm sure that informs my work as a writer in that way. Yeah, who who are the poets that since you brought that up, who are the poets that influence you, you think the most? Yeah. People um, always want to know that. I know, and there's so many people. It's such a hard thing to start. It's like, you know, your favorite music too. I you know, um I try and read widely, but you know, when I think about the like language, I think about even people like um like Plath, honestly, like that kind of like syntactical attention to music, uh, especially like syllabic um kind of work, you know. I got from, you know, things like Plath and contemporary poets I really like um, are people who are doing that kind of work in a way that sort of rearranges your your thought. Um, like Carl Phillips is a good example, Linda Gregerson, people who the syntax and the movement of the, the, the language is dictating and the sound of the language is dictating your mind as much as the content Uh I think that has something to do with music too, right? Like when you listen to a song, you're not always just like, oh, these lyrics are the best. You know, you're taken somewhere else. But So I, I really like that. And I like being a little disoriented in the middle of a poem too and sort of finding the thread back. So some of those type of people um, I'm drawn to. Yeah, I've always thought of like music as kind of hypnotizing you. Like mm -hmm. you're sort of matching the beat of the music and, and there's a way like your brain state changes to that. Like we talked about the poems being dreamy. There's that like, like state where your sort of mind is wandering 
and like before you fall asleep and you don't really know why you're thinking of what you're thinking about, you know, and, and that seems like the state that, that poetry makes and music makes too. I'd say that's the thing they have most in common. Um, but do you, do you agree with that? Do you think it's, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like it creates an experience of the poem rather like than reading about the poem. Um, and music certainly does that, uh, more so than poems because it has music involved. Right. But yeah, I think if you can create those sort of two, that, that different state, right. This is where I'm always to my students. I'm saying like, it, it is different. And these are one of the, one of the main ways it is different is it takes you to that place that you're talking about, which is, I don't know, you know, there's a lot of like transcendent is not a good word, but yeah, it lifts you a little bit up off of the the page and, and the content of the poem into that space that yeah, you yeah. get in. Maybe- transformation lift not transcend yeah you know you're, definitely you're transformed mentally yeah well there's a bunch more comment or questions to pass on but let's do a couple more poems we want, i'm trying sure. to i always try to balance the two yeah um, absolutely what do you want to do next um i'm gonna read uh let's see how about this poem called the dog man from luther because uh, it's kind of fun and um this is a again a, a michigan poem in some ways there's this you know, there's this legend about a dog man from Luther who, you know, steals your chickens and, you know, bothers your garage and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so that's what this is about, but also just sort of about any, any of those kind of legend spaces. Dog man from Luther. How many places are left in the woods where people still disappear? Where those who do come down from the hills or out from the mill-studded forest can only speak in a hush voices rooted down to the floorboards. At home tonight, dinner is a bird emerging from its feathers, one crooked branch on a tree. I plan for these things, the slow parts of the day, the way food can mask a different brand of want. There must be a hundred dark pockets still out there, triangles, quagmires, areas of unexplained disappearance. I hear the talk over dollar beers at the moose, Kids beneath the street lamps whisper and make huge halos with their hands, hoist phantom saw blades into the trees. They unshell story after story. A zoo train turned on the pass, a dozen wild animals loose on the Midwest winter, soot from the long-gone logging factory rising in the snowy air, hordes of beast men, the dog man from Luther, packs of terror hot for a kill. Tonight I retreat into these ghosts, a casualty of utterance or even the beast himself with all his unbridled fulfillment, every day blood like a hot new coat on my tongue. I listen to the wind tonight for my name, set still until it flickers like a candle in a wet cave. I let the whispers pull apart my limbs and cast me deep into any story that is not my own. Excellent. That was uh, the dog man from Luther. Joe Horton says, yes, classic breakfield deep cuts. I don't know if uh, I assume Joe Horton's a friend of yours, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there won't be any. Uh, he likes to say that all my poems are just about light falling onto the attic floor, which is true and not true. So uh. um, that, I was wondering, you know, with um, with folklore like that, which is just such a fascinating thing. And, and going back to Lomax, um, you know, he was he as much interested in, in the stories of people or was he more focused just on the style of music? That's one thing I didn't really pick up reading about him. Yeah, he was, it was both. And, um, you know, so much so that if you listen to the recordings and he, he did recordings all over the place, you know, later in his life, he, 
um, you know, everywhere from the Caribbean to, you know, the UK, um, West Coast, East Coast, the South, certainly. So, and even in, when you listen to those, not only the music, there'll be a lot of those where it's just people talking and he'll ask for people to, to tell them, you know, he'll get into a town and someone will say, oh, you got to go hear this person sing. But also there'll be someone that's like, oh, you have to go hear, you know, John tell the fishing story. Right. And so he'll go over and and on the recordings, you know, he has this really a sort of iconic way of starting his recordings uh, with like a numbered system. But then it'll just be someone talking about a really big fish they caught, you know. So mm -hmm. so that's certainly in there. And uh, in the Michigan tapes, you can even hear people talking about like Paul Bunyan and some of those really famous folk, folk tales, too. Uh, so that's in there for sure. Yeah. And, and he, um, sort of, I don't know if he was one of the first, but, but he, he talks so much about cultural equity, mm -hmm. which is something very ahead of his time to be, be interested in talking about that. And then also interesting with him. I mean, he was investigated by the FBI for such a long time for possibly being a communist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super just, progressive guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's just such an interesting person. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that cultural equity thing is really interesting too. And, you know, I, I hope some of that comes through in, in the in the book, uh, or at least in the long poem about Lomax. You know, I think there was a responsibility he felt to like getting it right, you know, and, and like not just trading on that, you know, cultural, those cultural artifacts that he was collecting, mm -hmm. um, as a lot of like other people were doing at the time. There was, you know, record producers just driving around taking songs and making a bunch of money off it. And um, yeah, so I hope some of that comes across in that big poem, too. Yeah, I think it definitely does. Um, yeah. So a bunch of people asked, and Danny, Daniel Mask here asked, what was Russell doing with national parks? Can you talk a little about what you were doing with national parks? Absolutely, yeah. So I did a, uh, a, um, a residency on Isle Royale National Park, which is um, in Lake Superior, way up almost in Canada. It's, it's one of the smallest national parks in the country. Um, it's also one of the least visited national parks in the country. It's really tiny, a little island. Um, closer to Canada than to the U.S., six-hour boat ride to get there from the, the Upper Peninsula. And so I did a three-week writer-in-residency there through the National Parks Department. Um, a lot of those programs are being defunded right now, which is a shame. But, uh, yeah, they gave me a cabin. And uh, it's a cool little island because there's no, there's no real civilization there. There's a lodge, but there's no vehicles, really, besides service vehicles on the island. And there's only a few places where you can stay most people go there to backpack and and hike and camp so they gave me this little cabin on, on the um on lake superior and i was writing about that for for a few weeks um yeah it was an amazing experience for sure um sean nelson asks has a line you've written independently kind of spilled out the rest of the piece um, uh yeah absolutely and i think that's where uh, thanks, Sean. I know Sean. Hey, Sean. Uh, love Sean. Um, that's where a lot of my uh, poems start, for sure. That you know, that poem that we included, you included graciously, and for you know, poets respond was definitely uh, a line that came first, the first line, and then everything else came after that. Um, in the best case, a line comes and the rest comes quick. And in the worst case, you're you're fumbling with a line for a long time to to get to the, to the end of that piece, but definitely or just the music of a certain phrase even sometimes um or the idea of a of a certain phrase that's usually where it all starts do you think there's like a like an itch that you have to scratch kind of with a line like that and like is there something i always feel like it, it's like your subconscious is trying to tell you something you know and then you're figuring out what it is do you think do you think that's the process like you you get a line and you're like this means something like let me figure out what it is 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I like that. Yeah. And I think that's why I like poetry too, because I don't have an idea always of where I want the poem to go. Right. So it's exploratory. It's, it's a, you know, mission. You're trying to figure something out and I'm definitely in a different space. You know, I've learned something different either about myself or language or whatever, when the poem ends and when I've started, um, which is again, like the main appeal for me, uh, that dream space you mentioned earlier, right? And sometimes it does feel like that too, where you're reaching for something that you don't know what you're reaching for, which can be a really pleasurable feeling, I think, in the writing process. Um, frustrating too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, let, let's hear another one. Uh, what sure. do you want to do next? Let's see. Uh, um, I think, well, maybe I'll read a couple of these uh, bluegrass poems. Tim, I know you said you were interested in those. Yeah, um, yeah, I like those a lot. Yeah, so this is on uh, page 73. It's a, a sonnet cycle called The High and Lonesome Sound. Um, and so I was when I was writing these, I was thinking of uh, Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys, this sort of foundational bluegrass band. Uh, and I just wanted to try and write sort of inside the perspective of the instruments. Um, so maybe I'll read two of them because they're linked, so they're kind of fun to go together. I'll read the first two. Sure. There's a Browning quote, uh, who hears music feels his solitude peopled at once. One, fiddle. We learn early on to keep the most precious things close to our necks. Copper for health, jasper for beauty, a silver cross for faith and humility. On stage, the fiddle cuts the room open. Swivel stop of blade, the trooper's shoulder swivels. A, band, a, a hand divides the torso, scratch and bow. A steel drone scores beneath the chin, unlaces the throat like a lover's fingers. Hair runs ruin, spins in an act of revision. How we unfasten for stories of the body, bare limbs perhaps made luminous by a mountain stream and tangled below the hum of lunar membrane. Two, banjo. The hum of lunar membrane, a minstrel mainstay. Each finger stands for a region of the brain. Each string played cuts experience off the body. Part of the player is leased to the listener like sign language or a farmer swatting a barn cat from the butter dish. A stage above the stage, the cavity rings. Strings cluck and roll, pulse like veins inside a sonnet dislodges to mucus. The octave stays alive. Volta holds tight the heart of the gut-spun room. A small bit of something, call it memory or music or life, is carried through to plume or skipper or ghost, is made nimbler or more alive for the process. Yeah, that was, that was two. That was banjo and, um, and fiddle from uh, the sequence, The High and Lonesome Sound. Uh, it's it's a beautiful poems and just the, the language that you use. And it's a perfect segue to ask uh, Christy W's questions. She says, uh, the poems are visually beautiful. Um, can you talk about that? Like, like, do you think about beauty as you're writing a poem? Is that something that you're reaching for specifically, or does it just happen? Yeah, well, thanks, Christy. I, I, I think they're beautiful. I don't think it's something I strive for, I guess. I, I'm, I like to hear that because I think why read poems if there's not some joy and, and beauty in there? And I, the more I work, the more I'm trying to get 
joy at least if not delight or beauty or um you know those more positive um experiences the more i'm trying to get those into the poems but yeah i think that's one thing that i hope the poems do if not consciously is that like maybe when they're exploring something like if the poem's exploring something difficult or interesting um it's doing so in a way that draws attention to the the beauty in those things that are also difficult and interesting so dynamics are important right just like in music so i hope that that both beauty and maybe not terror but <laughs> beauty and you know pain <laughs> beauty and pain are in there somewhere yeah there, there's a vocabulary in the poems too that just the the words you choose they're they're um do, do you are those just words you know or do you like research sort of if you're writing about a banjo I mean, you know the banjo because you play it, but do you do you look up words that relate to that and then and then craft them into a poem? Because there's so many words that I don't even know and that they're just there, pretty on the page, kind of, because um, they're so unique and and that's I don't know. There's some kind of spark there of, of beauty in in words that we don't know. Like it's sort of like the love of the object is in the poems or something. Um, do you yeah. do you research the vocabulary before you write a poem? Uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, some of it's, again, I think an argument for specificity, right? When you drill down into a subject, you know, you get all this rich language that's just waiting for you there to then use. And so when I was looking at the music stuff, I was certainly conscious of that, not only that there's a wealth of, of language resources to pull on, um, but also that, uh, again, I'm interested in a sense of musicality in the language, too. So yeah, sometimes I it, it comes naturally. Sometimes it's a product of the subject. But sometimes I do just make a list of words that I like or words that sound similar or um, words that are interesting sounding. Uh, and, and that's a maybe a place, maybe back to Sean's question of, uh, you know, a, a place of origin, right? Um, yeah, as opposed to like engaging with a subject, maybe I'll just engage with language and then that ends up somewhere somewhere different. Um, yeah, Daniel uh, Mask um, asked about about uh, meter. He notices um, the iambics that you have throughout many of the poems, if not all. It's sort of a natural uh, natural meter. Um, he was wondering if you teach meter, and is that something that you're conscious of, or is that just the um, the way that you happen to write? Yeah, I do teach it occasionally, though I don't measure feet, and I'm not looking at it from a metric standpoint when I'm writing necessarily. At least when I'm starting, I definitely go back then and think about where where it's where the language is being stressed and what the, the language sounds like but that's uh, i'm writing much from much more of a sort of natural you know meter perspective or, or a, a place where i'm just feeling it out i think mm -hmm. again that's a lot of that work happens in the revision stage where i'll have a similar thing i'm like oh, i'm writing in straight uh you know iambic tetrameter or something that's weird and then explore whether that's working or whether that's not to sort of develop the idea of the poem a lot of that though comes from like a, a slight obsession with some old school people like, you know, Keats and even Shakespeare sonnets. Um, I read those a lot in high school sort of secretly cause it wasn't very cool. But <laughs> I think that's where a lot of that, that love for that kind of stuff comes from. And it's sort of baked in, I think at this point, you, um, so much so that I have to push against it a little bit sometimes. But. Well, I was going to ask if uh, if your students push against it when you teach meter. Um, when I was going to school, um, it was like frowned upon. People didn't like meter, which is just, mm -hmm. it's strange to me, remains strange to me to this day. I don't know what the situation is like now. Um, yeah. But are students resistant to that, like the technical aspects of it? Or um, or do they, do they like it? 
always at first, right? Um, but students also, I found like things they can figure out, you know. And I think one of the jobs of teaching poetry is first tell them that like there's not a uh, like a compass or a key or something that's going to like unlock poems, right? That it's just through good close reading and talking and thinking about the poems that you can uncover things. Um, but I think with meter, the one thing, one aspect that appeals to them oftentimes because students are so assessment driven, at least nowadays, that is that like it's a there's a form that they can follow, right? Um, and so once they sort of figure out what that system is for doing the scansion stuff, uh, I think they are a little bit more attracted to it. But hmm. I, I also use music a lot to talk about it in the first place. So if I, you know, I'll bring in my little record player and, and play some music for them, and then use that as a segue. They're usually a little bit more, you know, open to talking about <laughs> all of those, you know, silly terms about meter. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's something I never thought of. It never even occurred to me that how how the sort of, is it No Child Left Behind that, that made all the standardized testing? Mm-hmm. Uh, how that might have changed people's approach to, to literature. Do, yeah. do you think it has? Is it, um, you know, I've been out of, I haven't been in an academic environment in like 20 years. Um, is it different than when you were in school? Like, is the perspective of, of the students a little different? Um, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways it is. Uh, I don't know, you know, with, with regards to poetry, I don't know that it's that much different. Um, I, the way that it's different, I think, actually, is just that they're reading a lot of poems online now in ways that when I was a, a, a student, that wasn't happening, right? If you were inter- interested in poetry, it seems like when I was younger, it was because you sought it out and you had to go find stuff in the library or at the bookstore. Um, and now, like, there's Instagram poets that are, you know, will sell many more books than I will ever think about even reading in my lifetime. Uh, and so I think they have access to a certain type of poetry, and whether that's good or not, that's a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think they are, I think they're more actually open to the idea that poetry is a thing that is kind of cool or at least interesting um, because of that, perhaps. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, we have uh, about 10 minutes left. So maybe time for like two poems and a couple questions in the middle. So do you want sure, to do an ultimate good. poem now? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I will read... I'll read this poem called The Florist's Apprentice, which is on page 11. The Florist's Apprentice, age 19. She was right, of course. We are as much thieves as we are divine, the horticulturalists among us. Her hands unhooked the earth. Swollen fingers nudged the roots of a mophead hydrangea. She was consummate at naming, moonlight, language plucked from history's catalog as she shook the cap in place and dragged atop a boggy sky. And so I didn't ask the summer I was her charge when we scored lilacs on the Alden Highway who rightly claimed the sticky combs cut in buckets in the truck bed. I loosed bees and Japanese beetles, fellow burglars from our sour hall, Bunched pollen sparked on my jeans through the fugitive light. And later, deep in a mitt of euchre, stowed lower deck, at the only bar for miles, I would say little thief, to the beautiful bartender's daughter to my right, moonlight, 
named for its lunar shape and glow, for how it robs all the brilliant light of the universe. Nice, and that was a florist apprentice, age 19. Um, let me ask, um, over here, I, I don't want to neglect Facebook. Mary Ellen Carr asks, um, if you ever begin a poem and realize, no, this is a song, or vice versa, and let that springboard into, like, what's the difference between writing for a song and mm-hmm. writing a poem? Um, like, like, I don't know, there's a different sort of aim almost. Um, yeah. Is there a different way you approach it? Like, how do you, how do you go about the, the difference between the two? Yeah. Uh, I usually don't sit down to try and write songs, um, though I do write them. But what I do have is this file called The Pit, that I just put poems that don't work. And so it's just this big document of chunks of stuff that maybe has some interesting line or, you know, potential lyric or image or things like that. And I'll oftentimes go there if I'm playing music and see if there's anything that might be interesting. Because, yeah, you're right. The aim is different. Um, With a song, you can do a lot less, I think, in some ways with the language because you have the accompaniment. So, um, you know, you don't have to do it all there on the page. And so I think songs can oftentimes tell stories more directly or can just be a little bit more sentimental, for lack of a better word, because they, you know, might have an interesting musical component that allows them to get to a different place than I could do in a poem or could do successfully. Um, Yeah, so sometimes I'll transition into that after writing poem, failed poems oftentimes end up as the start of songs. Um, So that's work. I usually start, when I'm writing songs too, I'm usually starting with the music. Mm -hmm. And so I'm putting language to music. uh, And so that, I think, oftentimes dictates what kinds of language I'm pulling pulling on or at least phrasing or things like that. Yeah, I, I was thinking just as you, you're talking about that, about I'm, I'm from near Buffalo. I grew up, which is similar, you know, feel to, um, you know, Michigan area. And um, I was a big Ani DeFranco fan. Yeah. And I always felt like she was writing poems and then putting some music to it. But mm-hmm. then she switched like consciously, like maybe 10 or 15 years ago to trying to write um, actual folk music. And mm-hmm. I think like trying to write toward a chorus, which seems like the difference to me, like, like she, like originally she used to always get mad at the audience for singing along. Yeah. <laughs> and I think she kind of like gave up and was like, well, you're going to sing along. So let's, uh, let's make a chorus that you can sing to. Yeah, and yeah. that kind of seems like the difference to me somehow, but I can't really, I haven't like mm-hmm. put it together in my head. Like why, like a chorus feels really great in a song, right? Like you, you want to sing along, but in a poem, yeah. a chorus doesn't really work. You know? Yeah. And I don't really I understand that, why. No, I, I know. But I, that might be back to your question about, you know, forms. I think some of the, the best new, best people working in, in forms or meter right now, I think that's maybe the attraction there is you get something like a chorus or even if you look at some repeated forms like, you know, a, a pantoum or something like that, Villanelle, you sort of have that going on. And if you can do that well, um, I'm friends here in Denver with the poet David J. Daniels, who is just an incredible formalists in this way where you know you can feel the pull of that hook you know or that chorus quality to it um but it also feels like uh challenging and interesting and natural uh you know and not sing-songy mm-hmm. um and that i think you know we can feel the the attraction to the chorus in those kinds of poems yeah yeah, yeah i agree um so one last question this is another good one from sean nelson um, he says, does, a, I think he says this line, I'm not sure what he's referring to, but does a line in a poem tend to be one that is uh, most impactful after completion, either in your eyes or in response, which I'm not sure what I take that to mean is, is, um, 
do you feel um, the most impact like after you wrote, like if you reread it, do you feel the same impact as you mm-hmm. did when you wrote it? I mean, does yeah. it carry on like that? That's something I don't think we've ever talked about on the show in yeah, seven, eight episodes, like reading, rereading your poems uh-huh. um, yeah, you know, months or years I'm, later. Yeah. I'm young enough so that it's like not too far away from me. Right. But I can't imagine looking back 20 years on, I mean, sometimes you do this and you look at a picture of yourself even and you're like, whoa, either sweet t-shirt or terrible haircut or something. <laughs> but and I can imagine having that kind of sensation when rereading poems too. There are certainly things, but you know, just, I haven't looked at this book in a, in a little bit. I haven't done a reading and, you know, obviously not a real reading in quite a while, but, um, I don't know. I think immediately afterwards, I'm so done with a poem, you know, I work on them so much and like the impact it's, I'm, I'm thinking about the, them differently. I'm having a really hard time often looking at them from that audience perspective and mm-hmm. feeling that impact. Um, and I really want to get back into the next writing phase of, of the process, which is the most fun for me. But then when, you know, looking back, even just looking back today, there's a lot of these lines. I'm like, hey, good, good line, Russ, <laughs> you know. And so that maybe uh, maybe there's a window here where like you can, you know, really be excited about some of your work or stay excited about it. And then. I'm sure at some point I will mm-hmm. start to think differently about them as I shift and change. Yeah, just to go back to talking about like the journaling aspect. Um, I always feel like like writing a poem is sort of like journaling your own mind journey, you know. Yeah. And then you get to share that with other people, but but you're already there, you know. So but you're like recreating that experience that you got to have is yeah. kind of what a poem is. Yeah, and it does transport you back, right? And I mean, the best poems transport the reader somewhere, and the you know I think that it it whether you feel good about what you wrote or not, it's certainly, it's like having a CD in your car for too long. And then you can only think about that time period when you hear that song or something, you know, it does transport me back to the times when I wrote those poems. And so that can be a different kind of sort of impactful experience too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do you want to finish out with one last poem? Yeah, sure. And I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read this poem called the Perseids to end. Um, just a sort of a love poem here. Um, it's called the Perseids. Eyes aloft in August, lifted towards the east. I'm hoping for a flurry, radio dust stretched across the night sky. Above me, all the alien lovers are asleep, stuck together beneath their foreign moons. There is a woman at home in bed with her dog. She knows I'm looking for the Perseids. I've reminded her the time is now to go out and gather the oldest fires of the universe. Each time we order a group of stars, we evoke great empathy for the living forms around us. The comets are quiet still, and I am a tree, blacker than the sky or the dirt. Were she with me, I would move my hand around her waist like the sun of some long-dead globe. I would tell her how Perseus turned the titans to stone, struck down snakes and beasts of the sea for his Andromeda. I can find no greater source of envy, he who crossed the world for his love, to be pressed together for eons in the sky. Excellent. That was the Perseids to close it out. And I have to say, uh, Russell, that in the, in the chat window, I think you set the record for people uh, quoting back lines in the chat because I love them so much. The <laughs> oh, that's Morph so Hydrangea, the Radio Dust. Oh, that's a, awesome. A whole bunch of people um, pointing out lines they love, which I love to see. So thanks so much yeah, for yeah. doing and that. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening. That's so fantastic. Like I said, this is such a great space, and uh, I, I just love it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being a guest, Russell. It's, it's great yeah. to get to know you. A poet I didn't never heard of until uh, last month, and uh, I'm glad I got to do. So uh, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tim. The pleasure is all mine, truly. This is a great experience. So thank you very much. Awesome. Good night. Yes, that was Russell Brakefield with his newest book. I'll put it on screen one last time. This is a, this is a field recordings, and um, for, by uh, Wayne State University Press. You can find more of uh, about Russell Brakefield on his uh, website, which is uh, russellbrakefield.com, just like you would uh, spell it there: R U S S E L L. B-R-A-K-E-F-I-E-L-D.com, RussellBreakfield.com. Wonderful guest and a really interesting book. So glad we could uh, feature that on the Rattlecast today. Now, as always, we have open open lines coming up for anybody who would like to uh, share a poem. Um, And this is how you do it. Let me put uh, this stuff on screen. Uh, All you have to do is uh, email the poem right now to openmic at rattle.com if you'd like to share something. That's openmic at rattle.com, open M-I-C. And then I can show it on screen as you read, which is always really nice, like I was doing for Russell. Um, and then give me a call, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Um, or send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word. It's Rattle Poetry. Just say hi. I'll say hi back, and then I'll call you back when the time is right. Um, the maximum time we go is an hour, so I won't call you back if you if you're, uh, have to go to bed or something. But... Uh, if you are still up for the next hour, feel free to uh, join in on the open lines and, and talk about it, share anything you'd like to share. We have a prompt this week, as we always do. This week's prompt was uh, right here. Write a poem about a tourist town during the off-season. So if you want, if you wrote a poem about the prompt, share that. If you uh, have anything else you'd like to share or just talk about, feel free to give me a call. And um, we'll have some fun open lines in just a moment. I'm going to stand up and uh, stretch my legs so I don't have to sit in one space for two hours. But um, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be um, Allison Townsend. And you probably know Allison Townsend was winner of the 2020 Rattle Poetry Prize, the big one, uh, for her pantoum. And uh, her newest book is The Persistence of Rivers here. But she's going to be talking about um, uh, two other books. She has um, uh, Persephone in America and... uh, Oh, and the blue dress. Yeah, so she's got three great books of poetry. We'll be talking about and reading from all three of those. Um, I've been a fan of Allison's for a very long time. Um, she's been a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize before. I just always love her poems. We published her a bunch. Never got to know her. Never met her before. So it should be a really fun episode. That is uh, next Tuesday, February 9th. In the meantime, I'm going to take like 30 seconds, stand up and stretch. Then we'll get to the open lines in just a second. Okay, see you in a minute. Thanks so much for your patience, and I hope you can refill your beverage and uh, whatever you're doing. It's always nice to take a little break and not, uh, not have to sit still in one place for so long. Um, and it's always, you know, once again, we have, um, let's see, Kristen Ryberg, Caitlin Buxbaum, Brent Stoffers here, Navita Karthik, Danny Mass would like to share something. Um, so we have a bunch of people lined up already. If you'd like to call, uh, call in and share a poem or just talk about anything uh, related to poetry, I guess, or related to Brussels Brakefield, today's guest, uh, give me a call, 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, then hang up. Or um, uh, send me a chat message over Skype 
to Rattle Poetry, all one word. We got Carla Schwartz calling in right now, so I'll call Carla back in just a bit. Uh, we'll get to as many people as we can, probably get to everybody today, um, but we'll, we'll do our best. And um, let me see. So, so the prompt, as I mentioned, was uh, to write a poem about, um, where'd it go? A, a tourist town during the off season. And uh, this was Megan's poem, uh, Ski Resort in June, a haiku with a title. This is uh, Megan's prompt poem for the week. Uh, a ski resort in June. Flimsy plastic sleds shredded and strewn in the grass. Love letters unsent. Flimsy plastic sleds shredded and strewn in the grass. Love letters unsent. That was Megan's prompt poem for this week. Of course, these are her prompts that she always picks. And I can uh, tell you what that's about for sure. We live in a ski resort town. And um, we uh, go hiking all the time, of course. And there is just plastic. Like, if you um, are going to go sledding in the mountains, or just anywhere, if you're going to go sledding somewhere that's not your backyard, get one of those good thick sleds. Don't get the cheap uh, $5 sleds that break apart into um, rainbow litter, because um, nobody in town appreciates that. So that's a little public service announcement for you. We have, like, little teams in town who try to go around and clean up this stuff and fill up garbage bags and garbage bags full of these sleds. So um, that is definitely the inspiration for Megan's poem. Now, I didn't have a chance to write a poem this week. Uh, This is the week, pretty much, you know, four times a year is the production week for Rattle. And I'm just too overwhelmed You know, I work until like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. every night getting these next issue and book together. Um, But I do have a poem, actually, that is about a um, a, a tourist town in the off-season from uh, American Fractal, my book. So I thought I would read that. I was just thinking, uh, talking to Russell about it, that, um, you know, looking back at your old poems, this is like 20 or 15 years old or something. I have no idea if I'm going to like this or not. Uh, This is from American Fractal, which is like 10 years old itself, or 12. Um... And then there's this poem, Beach Scene. Yeah, just called Beach Scene. And it's after a, a painting by Philip C. Curtis of uh, New Jersey Pier in the off-season. So I thought I'd read that, and uh, we'll see if I like it still. I don't know. I'm a little scared. Let's see. Beach Scene. Everywhere their clothes are coming apart, falling off. The wind blows silk shreds of confetti. At the beach, a gray gull circles, eyeing the glitter. The glitz, the pink tassels like intestines fishermen leave in heaps at the pier. One thing is always mistaken for another, as if accident were the fundamental attribute of life. Lightning strikes a rock, the rock becomes a heart, the heart fits perfectly inside the hollow tomb of your chest as you watch their clothes come off, stitch by painful stitch. And that thumping, sputtering organ kicks and purrs one more time like it's New Year's Eve in New Jersey, and everyone left in the room stops at once to moisten their perfectly parted lips. I don't know, that's interesting. It is really interesting reading old poems that um, you haven't looked at in <laughs> over a decade. I wasn't even a father when I wrote that, but um, I kind of like it. I guess it was okay. Um, well, let's see what you have. We have 212 calling in, and that's a new caller. So I think we will um, we'll go to the 212 just so you're ready. We'll go to you next. One thing I didn't say yet is that um, if I call you, there's a delay on the broadcast. So um, it's going to be a surprise. I'm still going to be talking on the uh, video stream. So make sure you shut that off when I call. And then you won't be confused by the two Tims talking to you at once because I haven't cloned myself. It's just uh, the delay. So uh, when I call you, make sure that you, um, that you will, uh, <laughs> that you turn off the, the, the audio. So let's see what uh, Danny Mask has. Let's call up Danny Mask first, then I'll call that 212 number and see who that was. 
Hey, Danny, how are you doing tonight? Well, having the best day of my life. Excellent. That's always great to hear. Uh, is every day the best day of your life? <laughs> <laughs> I always say it. It, it pumps me up. <laughs> well, I think that's a great way great way to look at it. And every time I talk to you, it seems like you're in a good mood, Danny. So uh, may, I think that might be true. Uh, you put me in a good mood, man. You do a good job. You really um, do. Well, thanks so much. I, I appreciate that. Uh, so what do you have for us tonight? Well, this one is, uh, I, live in a, I live in a beach town, so it's a tourist town here in Wilmington. So um, this is a perfect prompt for me. Um, Excellent. But funny, the inspiration for this poem uh, came from the, the classic movie line from the 1931 Frankenstein movie based on Shelley's novel. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? Uh, I know it's the movie. Alive. I know the line. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, yeah. I don't, I don't know how these things work, but it just popped into my head, and that kind, I kind of just uh, rode that wave. And uh, the uh, then I did some more research, and the uh, the plot from her second book um, is the title of the poem, um, hmm. "The Last Man." It's a, uh, it's during a pandemic. Too, and um, it's a guy who he's the last person on earth. Um, oh, I didn't read that's that interesting. Book. Yeah, I, I didn't know yeah. Shelley wrote a book that was the last man. That's interesting, huh? Yeah, yeah, that was uh, eighteen twenty eight. I forget it, back back in the day. Wow. Yeah, I kind of want to go read that now. Okay, let's hear the poem. Um, okay. Yeah, and this uh, this poem has a Whitman flair for some emotional push with some control. You'll see. Uh, The last man, nod to Mary Shelley and Sunset Beach. Like a ship's captain's revenge, marooned or the long survivor of the plague. Oh, paradise, you friendless wet winter. I am reborn in your solitude on this unpeopled beach. Waves roll and unroll as seagulls defy gravity, leaving behind the faceless crowds of summer. Let the salted air swallow me whole as the relentless ocean and the jewel blue sky meld into one color of resilience. I'm alive. I'm alive. That's all that matters. <laughs> I love that, Annie. Thanks so much. It was Danny Mass with The Last Man. Thanks for sharing that, Danny. Well, you're the best, buddy. Thanks. You too. Take care, man. Yeah. Bye. Yes, yeah, so it was Danny Mask with The Last Man. And Danny puts his uh, title at the bottom um, so poetry is more like a, a work of art, like a painting. I like that idea too. Uh, let's see. Let me read on Carlton Johnson's poem. This is On a Trip by Carlton Johnson. Let me put this up too. On a Trip by Carlton Johnson. Before we left home, packed our orange VW camper bus, checked our maps, fueled our tank, tuned in to an AM radio station, one that will last at least the first 100 miles. After that, we were on our own. When we couldn't pick up a station, we had a Sony 8-track tape player, and we sang loud and lustily to Chicago, Boston, Kansas, and Atlanta rhythm section, or even the Carpenters. We are one happy, though map-challenged family. It was January, the off-season for tourism, but that did not matter. We were on a road to nowhere. As in, do you know where where we are going today? When we reach the Enchanted Forest Amusement Park on Route 1, it is all boarded up. A large sign on the front read, closed for the off-season. Hope to see you when we open at the end of May. 
But what we read was, if you come all this far in January, you are pretty stupid. Now turn around while you still have some gas in your tank and go home. We had seen America, and it was closed for the season. Yet we continued south, open to more adventure. Oh, I really love that. It was Carlton Johnson with On a Trip. And that uh, that brought back some memories for me reading that. We, uh, you know, from, in New York, we had the... Um, I don't know if it's the same Enchanted Forest. I remember the commercials when I was a kid. I always wanted to go. We never did. Then one time we went to um, um, Marineland in um, in in Toronto, I guess, is where Marineland is, or is it Niagara Falls? And uh, when we got there, the same thing. The, the one thing I wanted to do, because what they showed on the, on the commercial was the roller coaster. And uh, the one vacation we went on, we went there, and the roller coaster was uh, closed for maintenance that day. Um, let me see. <laughs> Um, who is next? Let's do, um, try to go in the order they were requested. Let's do Nivedita Karthik before she has to go to work. She has a small poem for us today. Hey, Nivedita, yeah. how are you? Yeah, hello, how are you doing today? Oops, let me, uh, oh, gotta grab your screen. No, not that one. Okay, there we go. Because <laughs> you do the vertical, so it, 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 it changes a little bit. Okay, so how are you doing today, uh, Nivedita? I'm on my phone. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a it's a nice day. I'm a little tired. It's been a long um, long couple of days, and I'm gonna have a long night tonight. But uh, having fun right now doing the poetry. What do you have to <laughs> to share share for us? Um, so it's about the Amalfi Coast and how it is in off season. It's more of an expectations versus reality poem. What do you think it's gonna look like versus what it actually looks like in winter? Excellent. Not like I've ever been to the places, but that's just <laughs> how I imagine it will look like and how I imagine it would be like. So. Excellent. Well, let's hear it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay. Poetry of Positano. Beautifully gloomy. The dreams we dreamt had multi-hued houses stacked like Lego blocks, higgledy-piggledy on the precarious cliffside above the sea, shimmering in blue and gold. Golden lemons ripe on the trees hung low enough to pluck and touch, and tantalizing limoncello awaited with a side of gelato under the striped orange umbrella on the shore. Now, here we are. The winding cliff roads, blissfully empty, free of the bumper-to-bumper tow buses, stand guard over the sulky grey waves, dull under the pale winter sun. The cafe tables, all stacked neatly, serving as seats for empty wooden chairs, lean against the pastel pink wall under the mint green shutters, closed tight. The beach, a melancholic painting in varying shades of grey and brown, lacks the pop of colour that draws one eye to the merrily waving beach umbrellas. The wind picks up speed, howling through empty streets as the citizens, warm in their cozy homes, sit by the fire above the Amalfi Coast. Excellent. And and what is the Amalfi Coast? Um, that's, you know, being an ignorant American, I assume that's in India somewhere. No, it's actually in Italy. Oh, it's, in uh, Italy. Positano, Ravello, and Amalfi, Sorrento. So they're all small hillside towns on the Italian coast. It's the Italian Riviera, for want of a better word. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much uh, for sharing that and teaching me about something. (laughs) So many tourists who would come there that they had to curtail the number of people who would visit the place. So it's it's supposedly like one of the most popular tourist destinations. You have narrow winding roads Mm. above the cliff on the sea. And it's it's just apparently it's very difficult to drive there if you're not an experienced driver. Mm -hmm. So things like that. And it's known for the lemons and huge mansion houses. Interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to go there. The only place I've ever <laughs> been out of, out of the country is uh, Mallorca in Spain. 
And I, uh-huh. and I thought that, it, that my Spanish, I know a little bit of Spanish. I thought it would come in handy. Mm-hmm. And all the tourists are Italian. So they were just all speaking Italian everywhere. And I, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't use any of my Spanish. But uh, oh, well. <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for calling in, Nivia. Uh, always, a, always a great pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Always lovely talking to you, yep. too. Good night. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. That was Nivedita Karthik with the poetry of Pasit- Positano. Beautifully gloomy. Uh, thanks, as always, Nivedita. Um, let us see. Um, so, so Kristen says, I think we'll just enjoy listening tonight. Okay. If you can fit me in before... S- 6.30 here. Okay, let's do Caitlin. Let's fit her in before uh, she has to go somewhere else. Um, let's see what Caitlin has for us tonight. Uh-oh. I'm here. Hey, Caitlin, how you doing? Good. Just Let too me, many uh, technological things. Yeah, you are you're still in your uh, NASA control center with so much going on. Yes. Um, let me, uh, my uh, email just logged me out, so I have to log myself back in. Of course, this is the time it picks to do that. Yeah. Um, but um, but um, not that it matters that much, but you are frozen for me right now. Oh, am I? Oh, no. Yeah, I, I switched back to the other secondary camera, and I was hoping that wouldn't happen. I guess I, I'm going to freeze for people. I don't know how to fix this, but uh, well, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it and see if it happens for everybody or, mm-hmm. or what. But, okay, well, uh, what do you have for us, though? G- Glitter Gulch. Yes, so I was very excited to about this prompt. I thought of this place immediately, um, but I actually ended up writing two touristy poems this morning. But one of them I submitted to Poets Respond, so you'll just have to wait and see that one later. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to it. Um, so this one, Glitter Gulch, is a place, and I, I put a picture in the Word document that I took several years ago. It's not a great picture, but it's the only one I could find that I took of mm-hmm. the place. And it's this stretch of highway. Um with all these little, um, you know, gift shops and cabins and stuff um, that lead up to the um, road through Denali, mm-hmm. so through Denali National Park, um, and all the locals call it, well, all the Alaskans call it Glitter Gulch, but technically it's Denali Park Village. Um, and, uh, yeah, just an interesting little piece of Alaskana for you today. It's still pretty rough because I just wrote this like an hour ago, but... Yeah, well, thanks for sharing it. We uh, we see it on screen, and uh, it reminds me of um, you know Megan is from uh, Enumclaw, which is at the foothills of um, uh, Mount Rainier in Washington. Mm. It looks kind of a similar similar vibe just in this little picture, but uh, <laughs> could be. But yeah, you can Google it later to see better pictures if you want. <laughs> okay, so Glitter Gulch, and I have a quote from a, an article here, but it's not terribly important, so I think I'm just going to skip that part. All right, so Glitter Gulch. Not all that glitters is gold, or even fool's gold, though you'll find some of that here, even now, in the shuttered gift shops shadowed by Denali, hushed in harsh winter, dulled by that corona we all know and hate. Drive that stretch of road claimed by the Park Service today, and you might catch a ghostly local, hired last summer to trap the few tourists brave or dumb enough to travel to the town that's not a town at all, but a makeshift village, a collection of cabins and eateries littering the highway like fungi, only worse, less natural, in a time of disease and turmoil. There are assumptions that next season will be better. Until then, no souvenirs are sold. No feverish fingers point to the great one. 
no mouths gasp in awe of it. Only the caretakers, minding locks and frozen pipes, say hello every morning, whisper goodnight. Oh, I love that ending. Excellent. That was a glitter gulch. How, how far are you from uh, from there? Um, uh, uh, significant ways. It's three hours drive, mm-hmm. probably at least. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. A good insight mm-hmm. into a different place I've never been. I love that. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Thank you. Yep. Good night. Good night. Okay. Um, let me see. Who is next? Ah, so Kristen sent a haiku. We'll call Kristen if we call Brent. Uh, let's call it Brent Stoffer. <laughs> That's fine. How are you doing tonight? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing great. Now this is interesting. I don't see you at all. Oh, at all now? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let, uh, let me just try to to f- fix that. Really interesting. Quick. Yeah, I could put it on the um, I could put it on the the snow cam. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I see an I see I see an icon of you. That's weird. Yeah, it's just. Dropped out webcams. I wonder. No, it's definitely me, not you. For some reason, my webcam just drops out um, from Skype after a while. It happened a couple episodes, but I guess I guess callers callers have to hear me. But uh, but that's okay. I'm not worth looking at anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so so, what do you have for us, Brent? Um. Well, I kind of went with the prompt. I except um, instead of a tourist town. I did a um, a state park off season, and um, uh, over the summer I drove up to Connecticut and went through a place called Hungry Mother Creek, and so I knew I was going to use that at some point. Yeah, that's definitely and, a good uh, line. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I I looked. I, and I haven't actually been there. We didn't get out of the car even, you know. But I did a little bit of looking into what goes on there. And um, they were talking about stuff to look for if you were there in the off season during the heavy winter months. And um, they said that you might see um, a chipmunk hole with uh, frost around it. And that the frost... The frost around the chipmunk hole comes from the chipmunk sitting inside the hole breathing. Oh wow! <laughs> and the moisture in his breath collects and and turns in. And I thought, well, okay, I got to yeah. use that. You got to use so, that. The, the chipmunk yeah. frost and the hungry mother creek. That's definitely a yeah. poem that writes itself. Let's hear it. Well, let's hope. Okay, <laughs> winter at hungry mother creek. Here in the white shadow of Molly's Knob, bundled in land's end, I traipse the snowy trail alone. The hemlocks moan under their thick burden. The entrance to a chipmunk burrow boasts a jagged necklace of frost. It's a brief history of breath. Standing still in the silence of the breezy snowfall, I hear brittle leaves crackle a delicate cacophony. Maybe a light-footed vole eager for her dark home. There's not a human soul anywhere to be found. My name is back at the cabin, sleeping it off. Excellent. I love that. Hung- Winter at Hungry Mother Creek. Thanks so much, Brent. That was great. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate yep, yep. it. Yep, have a good one. You too. Bye. Okay, that was Brent Stoffer with uh, Winter at Hungry Mother Creek. Uh, let me see. I don't know what is going on with my... Um, I have Maybe I have too many cameras. 
Um, I'll try to figure that out sometime during the off season <laughs> when we're not live. Oh, the two o two one two. I totally forgot the two one two. Let's see who's at two one two. I know that's a New York City number. Let me see who it is. So it's it is. Who am I talking to? Uh, I'm James Gaynor. Ah, thanks so much for calling in. Did you send a poem? I did. Uh, it, it was called Lourdes. Um, let me try um, to find it. Um, hmm. And you sent it to openmicatrattle.com? Maybe it I went did. to my spam. Let me try. But but what do you, uh, what's it about while I try to find it? Yeah, it went to my, it uh, went to my spam. Okay. I should check my spam okay. every day. That's before. really great because last week, uh, my friend Kristen who got me interested in this part of Rattle. We've both been subscribers for some time, but she read her poem about spam, so yay. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this is uh, Lord's... Um, here we go. And so um, what do you want to say about this to introduce it? Well, I was thinking... I'm, I'm, I'm now in my third pandemic, so I'm kind of like... I'm aware of what happens during these things and how attention gets diverted and how we sort of shift around with belief systems. And mm. I had something I noted down a long time ago uh, when I was, uh, I was traveling and about Lourdes, and I just thought, well, this is a tourist town, and then I didn't think much of it after that. But then also what I think is that on top of everything else that's going on, it's out of season because this level of... of Faith in miracles is kind of like really gone by. Certainly, I've gone way beyond it. Mm-hmm. And then that reminded me uh, of uh, second grade in a, uh, a Roman Catholic primary school uh, where we practiced uh, hiding under our desks uh, waiting for the atom bomb. Interesting. And, uh, and, and I, I just thought, well, actually, these two are kind of related, and I'm, I, I, I've put them... Uh, together because I'm fascinated by how footnotes will change the look of a page. I, I really, I love that when it happens, so that pages don't aren't always the same. Uh, that that to me is uh, kind of uh, fascinating. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and read it? I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Okay, well, the, the first part of it is called Lourdes. And uh, without the tourist attraction, it's just another small town with, with ordinary people wearing uneventful shoes, walking down the street, hoping for a miracle. And then I have an asterisk, and then you go down a bit on the page, and in a footnote thing, there's a poem called, OK Boomer. In the greater world, Eisenhower was president. But in the schoolrooms, real power was wielded by nuns, teaching that bad grammar was a sin. And in the event of nuclear war, sirens would signal us to duck and cover, to kneel under our desks, faces to the floor, hands interlaced over our heads to pray. Somehow, please God, somehow, let us get through second grade without being reduced to ash. Amen. Oh, that that's really fascinating juxtaposition there with the the two poems. I I like that a lot. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you very much.
Yeah, yeah. I always love having a first-time caller. Let me make sure I put it in, put in the phone book, too. That was uh, James Gaynor with uh, Lourdes. Right. Thanks so much, James. Thanks again. I loved, I, I loved, I loved this, uh, uh, the, the interview today. It was just so wonderful with musicality and meter. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, it's, just, it's fun to talk to someone new every week. I, I love doing this show. It's great. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you could enjoy it and, and join us. Ah, thank you. Bye. Yes, that was uh, James Gaynor, and let me put him in the phone book to make sure we, we know who he is next time he calls. Hope he calls again soon. Um, and uh, who else do we, who haven't we got to? Um, so Kristen uh, Linnea Ryberg and uh, Carla Schwartz are, the I think, the only two left so far. Um, yeah, so we'll definitely do, do you two. And, and let me say one more time, the phone number's on the screen, 818-850-7727. If you would like to share a poem or, or talk about something, uh, or send me a chat message over uh, to Rattle Poetry, all one word, over Skype, and then I will uh, call you back either way. And send your poem, if you would, to openmic at rattle.com. Um, let's see. Let's do uh so so uh, Gail Hemmons says I don't know if I'll read tonight but I wanted to share two haiku. Let me let me do these. I just read them since they're haiku instead of putting them on the screen. Um so uh this is uh from Gail Hemmons. She says um uh thanks for bringing us Dana Joya last week. Yeah, that was a joy. I, I forgot to mention there was a really interesting um parallel. I, I forgot to bring it up with uh with Russell. But uh one of the the people who wrote a lot about um about um uh, Alan Lomax was Ted Joya, uh, Dana's brother, which um, who's a you know a music writer and, and um, I don't know what you'd call call it, but a, a musicologist or something like that. So um, a strange connection with last week's show this week. But this is a uh, two from Gal Hemmen. Timeless radio, shadows on our walls start singing. What else do we need? Timeless radio, shadows on our walls start singing. What else do we need? And then her second haiku, quick poems at lunch. Our mind works in half sonnets. Time is fast and slow. Thanks so much for sharing those, Gail. It was two haiku from Gail Hemmen. Uh, thanks, Gail. And then uh, Kristen Ryberg says she has a haiku, too, and she uh, has time to join us. So let's, uh, let's call up Kristen. Hello. Hey, Kristen. Uh, let me. I think I hear myself, so I'm gonna mute you for a second while you turn that off. Okay. Um. Yeah, no problem. Um. So you you said this was too long. I don't think this is too long at all. If you'd like to share it, but um. But do, would you rather do your haiku? Well, you know, I just wrote that one this afternoon, and I realized, oh my gosh, it's it's really uh, it needs a little more work. I think so. Okay. Well, maybe well let's wait just, till, Sure. Sure. I'll do the haiku. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, the white canoe rests on the sloped bank. Trout kiss circles on pond's face. The white canoe rests on the sloped bank. Trout kiss circles on pond's face. Oh, I love that. That was Kristen Ryberg with a, a haiku. Thank Thanks you. so much for, for sharing that, Kristen. Oh, you're welcome. And that was my friend James before. I'm so glad he called. We had a pact to call together. Oh, that's together. great. Well, so I'm so glad you both we did. did. Hope it, you James. do next week, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Take good night. care. I hope you get some sleep. Yeah, I need some. Good night. Okay. Bye. Bye. Um, let's see. And then uh, Carla. 
Okay, this one instead. I have the I have the update, Carla, and let's call up Carla. So the phone's ringing for Carla right now, and she has a uh, Lake Winnipesaukee. Oh, hello, hello. Hey, Carla, how you doing tonight? I'm okay. Uh, this is a little unusual for me because I decided I'm giving you a very fresh poem tonight. Excellent. Well, I love fresh. How are you doing? You're okay. you're in the uh, nor'easter, right? How how much snow did you get? Twenty inches. Ah, you didn't um, beat us, but you came close. <laughs> uh, okay, but it it was lovely. It was really lovely. Yesterday, I skated on a pond. Oh, nice! And yeah, and then I actually skied in the woods on like almost zero snow. And then we got 20 inches, and I'm really happy. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, well, congratulations. Hope you get a lot of skiing in this week while it's there. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, so so, what's, so this, um, what's this poem? Yeah. So this poem, and I sent you two versions. The second version is what I'm reading. Yeah, I got um, that. Okay. It's called Lake Winnipesaukee, early January. So I'm writing about, uh, you know, being on the lake. Um and uh, which is normally we, we do go there in the winter, but this is a summer place. OK. Mm-hmm. When we arrived at the marina, the boat deck was covered in snow. The lake was full, wavy, open water, those surrounding the boat, skims of ice. We picked our day, though, not too cold, full sun. By, from the north, a light wind. We cleared the snow from, the, from around the kayak, slipped the boat into the water, the kayak, scraping it over the hardened snow, splashing it in, displacing the lake, winding it alongside our big boat, our deck, slip, and, and slipping our propeller into the water, loading it, the kayak, with dry sacks, and under the high noon sun, we step in, drag ourselves under the icy tie lines that trapped us and escape out from the shoreline ice, from the shoreline ice, I pedaling the drive, you at the front of the kayak without a seat, but laid out on our luggage in the sun. Our destination island dusted in snow while you demand we keep close to shore that we that we should have no water accident. So I drop you off to walk to our home while I wind back around our island toward our cove, the wind following me from behind. Not a patch of ice as I pedal my boat, surfing the water. Who would imagine I'd be out in January kayaking to the largest unbridged island in Lake Winnipesaukee? Normally, snow would blanket the frozen lake at this time of year, but today is sunny, not too cold. If I keep moving and stay in the sunshine, trading off between the safety of the shoreline and shadow where the wind might send chills down my neck, at our cove, the shore is snow-covered, but water surfaced is wind-flustered. I don't w- notice as my bow slides over a thickness of ice. No hacking with my paddle would destroy. So I push my kayak back from the ice and slip out my drive before paddling through the water over to a dock with a bubbler 
where the water won't freeze ever and sit with the sun on my face ensconced in my kayak to set up our dockside picnic out of the wind. You say there must be a way to skirt the ice and set out to break it up, but ice is far fiercer than snow. I trudge through than the snow I trudge through, protected from the wind, to our summer home, hemmed in by snow, while you tie up the kayak to join me, finally beaten by the ice. We meet up at our threshold, sunlight waning, not bothering with the heat, just sipping water. Excellent. That was Carla Schwartz. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. That was a great storytelling, and I wanted to, I wanted uh, to be there with you. <laughs> like, oh, thank you. I was well, trying. It's supposed to be a Sestina, and it's just like, you know, it's, <laughs> I just wrote it tonight, so I'm just like, in, you know, it still needs work, but well, that's great. I was, I, I was, I was, in, I was in, enthralled with the story. Thanks so much. Uh, oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, have a great night, Carla. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Um, and that was Carla Schwartz. Ah, Richard Westheimer has. Uh, we have we have time. We uh, we can, go, we can go until eight. That's the rule. So we have time for Richard. Let's call up Richard and see what he's got. Not a prompt poem. Hey, Richard, how you doing? And my camera's still off, so you can't see me, but oh well. I can't see you. I just see that profile picture of you yeah. as a much younger man. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what the deal is. And now I uh, made it full screen, which I can't do. Yeah. Hang on a second. There we go. Okay. Um, so so what do you have for us? It says, it says not a prompt poem. Not a prompt poem, but I but I heard uh, Carla come in with a fresh poem, and I uh, I read uh, reread um, Seamus Haney's *A Bridget's Girdle* today because it's about this day, which is the um, the halfway point between uh, solstice and equinox. Mm-hmm. Which um, interesting, uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, which is seems to be a uh, in the British Isles. These sort of quarter days, half quarter days, are are uh, observed as the first of the season. So I just decided to take it and pick a word from it and uh, see what came of it. Very cool. Well, let's hear. It. Awoken on Imbolc Imbolc Day. Let's Imbolc say that right. Day, Imbolc. which is okay. which is like our Groundhog's Day, and mm-hmm. they're. It, you know, oh, it's their, um, I didn't even make that connection, but yeah, all the kids are making uh, groundhog groundhog art for for their Zoom school. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's first time I sort of realized this intersection of yeah, groundhog day. Interesting. And yeah, day. it's weird how things always have some reason, you know, like more than we realize. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, go ahead whenever you're ready. Sure. Awoken on Imbolc Day, behind me. I can see that warm evening of bonfire, our home candlelit as we chanted rounds, called back the sun with the fervor of believers. Since then, the winter cold has penetrated new places. My bones require more layers of clothes as the deep gray days seep behind my brow. The shadows there convince me that our solstice songs sung just weeks ago must have pushed the sun away rather than urging its return. Yet a true reckoning shows the days have by their own accord lengthened. The sun sets later 
and my morning coffee brews in dawn light rather than darkness. Today at the quarter crossing between the nadir day and the equinox, the, um, though all is icebound, the first flocks of geese fly over our pond. Inside, by a window facing east, I sort packets from the seed box, ponder the tiny die cots tucked in each, imagine the future each one contains. Ahead, I see the emergence of lightsome hours, when dark and day share the stage in equal parts, and look back to the songs we sang on solstice night and forward to the moment I will bow and rake back the leaves from garden beds, furrow back enough spring soil to tuck in the seedlings. I started at the tween time. Actually, that's a perfect poem for this day. Thanks so much for sharing that, Richard. It's always great to just note, like, notice those things, the, the calendar and, and, the, and the time of year. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the evening. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, that was Richard Westheimer. Um, I think that's the last caller we have. Um, I'm going to do, just in case there's any last stragglers, if you want to uh, call in, I'll put the numbers up one last time. Um, there they are. It's 818-850-7727. Um, or Rattle Poetry, all one word. Uh, but before, let me do, uh, for the for the podcast, for people who are driving and want a two-hour show, let me... Um, let me um, do two poems to close out this show. Uh, let me find a poem by um, Allison Townsend, who's next week's guest. And let me do, um, I did a random button, too. And we'll do, uh, we'll see what we got here. This is a, a random button selection. If, it, if it's not loud enough, I'll um, read it myself. But we'll see how the, how the audio, if it's loud enough. I didn't test ahead of time. I just clicked the random button. But I love this poem. She rings like a bell through the night by Jan LaPearl, and that was in uh, rattle number 35. So let's do this, and then we'll do an Alison Luderman, or not Alison, I, I get them confused, Alison Townsend, Alison Townsend poem. But then let's, let's do this first. Jan LaPearl, she rings like a bell through the night. She rings like a bell through the night. Yesterday, my husband bought a Lincoln Town car. As we were driving to pick it up, he said how it was once the longest car in America. Sometimes I don't have to imagine what he'll be like when he's old. I can see clearly tonight the moon. To the moon and back is how I love you, I said, and what I say now to my month-old daughter. But that's not right. That's not enough. To the moon and back and back and back when I was first getting to know my husband, I lied, told him I only wanted to be friends. I remember his eyes, a ship through ice. Ship fronts scare me, and that is what I felt like pregnant, so big and capable of so much, so much good, so much bad. It was the bad I dwelled on. I watched videos of babies with two heads, many legs, nothing at all for eyes. I was sure I was ruining her somehow, some way, the fluff or not her, too many tuna fish sandwiches. I thought once I gave birth, I'd be relieved if she was okay. I could sleep through the night and stop dreaming of her sleeping in my arms, a pole for a head. 
One fear replaces another. Each now, night now, I wake in fear that I've crushed her in bed. Sometimes it's so bad I wake the husband and the two of us and the slight light of the street light are in there in the king bed digging through pillows and sheets looking for our baby. Digging and digging as if our bed was the terrible ground beneath the floorboards. We sweat, breathe heavy, I'm crying. The power to kill something is so strong up in me and so strange to be right next to the part of me that can love something this much. It's the sort of love I want to tell people without children about, as mothers and fathers once told me. But this is impossible, and it's impossible to think of my life before her as they said it would be, to think of how it was when I first saw my husband, how I imagined our life together even then even when he was someone else's. How quickly life can change direction. I wonder if all couples imagine their husbands or wives old, themselves old. I wonder if my parents had done so when they first married, decades before their divorce. They couldn't have known where their lives were going. I wonder about the ease of a U-turn in our Lincoln town car, a U-turn over the highway median, illegal, sad. I do not want my husband to leave me. There are so many fears in me. When I try to fall asleep, I can hear a knocking against the headboard. Someone is already at my door with a big bad news. So I sleep for a little while until the baby wakes me. Sometimes I'm so tired when she wakes, I get so damn mad at her. Last night, I set her little screaming body on the countertop, simple like a set of keys. Her little hand was hitting against the lever on the toaster. I think now it might have looked like she was making toast. She had to hit against something to wake me, to tell me I was being a bad mother, selfish for wanting sleep, more than wanting to care for her, her little little belly, empty as the streets, terrible when they're empty. The lake sits at the end of our street. The sad boats float, one going this way, one that. That's how I see our marriage going sometimes, as if our love will turn into something obligatory, something to maintain like a lawn or a loosening shutter. Something in me is loosening. I dream each night of flying. Once, years ago, I pranked my father, told him his house in Florida had been hit by a storm. Pieces of his house were loosening. I disguised my voice, made it old and cranky. The funniest part is that he believed this voice. Inside of me is the old fuddy-duddy I will someday be. I feel her in there like a pregnancy. Aren't there so many parts of us, young, old, our children, parents? Luckily now we have a big car. It stretches across our driveway ready to hold us like a big, big hand. That was Jan LaPearl reading uh, her poem from metal number 35, She Rings Like a Bell Through the Night. Hopefully that was loud enough. If not, I'll crank up the audio for um, for the uh, the podcast version. But uh, let me know. I'm curious if um, if we can do that or if I should read them more often. It's hard to tell where the line is. But I love that poem. Um, that, that was one of those poems where we, um, we had just had our, um, Megan and I just had our first, uh, our daughter. And so we had a newborn baby. And that poem... Um, really uh, sung to us uh, at that time when we were sleep deprived and trying to make it through. She Rings Like a Bell Through the Night by Jan LaPearl. And now, like I mentioned, next week's guest is going to be uh, Allison Townsend. And uh, this was my introduction to Allison Townsend. This was um, four years before that for Rattle Number 28, 
um, and this might be the first one. No, this is the second. This is a, she was a finalist for the second annual Rattle Poetry Prize at the time, 2007. Um, and this poem is called Spin. There's no audio, and I'll just read this uh, for you here. This is Spin by Allison Townsend, next week's guest. Spin. I don't remember if the bottle was a Coke or a Fresca, just the, that the glass was cool against our hands in the warm, empty tool shed. Where we'd gathered after swimming all afternoon at Debbie Worthman's eighth-grade pool party. Everyone's skin damp and blue in the shadows. The boys' chests bare. The other girls wearing cute peekaboo cover-ups that matched their demure suits. And me with a frayed blue shirt of my father's. Its tails tied fetchingly around my first bikini. A homemade job I'd stitched up in pink and red paisley from a simplicity pattern. The bottom half barely on because I'd run out of elastic. I don't know what Debbie's parents thought when we slipped away, leaving the pool, or whose idea it was as we trudged up the hill between her father's prize-winning roses, their scent filling the air like primitive attar, their metal name tags clinking in the breeze. That seemed to have come up from nowhere pushing at us with invisible hands as we locked ourselves inside the half-dark that smelled of wood chips and compost, our eyes dilating like cats, faces suddenly pale beneath copper-toned tans. I wasn't sure why I'd been invited to this party or why I'd come except that he was here, the boy who'd pushed me into the pool more times than any other girl and who, when the guys raided the girls during a lull in Mr. Telerico's classical music experience had given me a nine, Beethoven's booming, making me feel almost good enough, almost deserving of his attention. Which, when it fell on me, when our eyes caught and locked, threw out a tinsel, silk line that hooked my breath and heart as easily as he made jump shots at games, the ball teetering on the orange rim, then bingo, in. While the sweaty mascot pranced, in the moth-eaten tiger suit, the cheerleaders scissored their perfect legs, and I held my breath, hoping he'd look my way, his hand dribbling the ball as if he was touching my body. All that pressurized and pushed down inside as someone twirled the bottle and it spun, blurring as we held our breath like 14-year-old yogis, and thank God it pointed at someone else, from whom I had to look away as their lips met. My stepmother's injunctions, don't stare, cross your legs at the ankles, loud in my head. Though I would have liked pointers, one dry, chaste peck, the year before from Bruce Colley, all I had to go on. But I gazed down until the bottle whirled toward me, its opening like the little O of surprise that undid a slipknot inside my body, something not quite desire, but what I'd soon call anticipation, singing along with Carly Simon's song, a fist in my solar plexus opening and closing like a luna moth's wings. As he moved across the circle and tilted my face up, his palm cupped beneath the curve of my cheek, then fastened his silky double-mint-scented mouth over mine, everything in the room disappearing in the plush wriggle of his tongue, the slight thrust of his cock stirring beneath cut-off jeans, and my tongue moving back, as if I had been born knowing this, as if we were back in the pool, his hand water on my skin, the rest of the kids gone, the inside of my eyelids spangled with paisley swirls. As I leaned further and further into this kiss that would sustain me all summer, 
practicing for the next one with my pillow or the fleshy part of my palm, enlisting for life to the lure of my male's hard, angular body, the taste of mint everywhere, like clean, green rain. And that was uh, Alison Luderman's poem uh, from round number 28, Spin, which is my introduction to Alison Luderman. I'm really excited about uh, having her on the show next week. She, of course, was the... Um, Rattle Poetry Prize winner this year for a Pantoum. I think she was a finalist twice um, over the the 13 or how many years have we done that? 17? I don't know. I, I can't keep track. Um, but she's been a finalist a couple of times and, and finally won this time. And um, now next week's uh, prompt is going to be, here it is, uh, next week's prompt. Oops, not that. Sorry, Richard. Um Next week prompt is going to be onomatopoeia is a figure of speech in which a word when spoken imitates the sound it describes. Tick-tock, clang, or splash are examples of onomatopoeia. Write a poem that include one or two or one or more onomatopoetic onomatopoeic words. I love that word. Onomatopoeic. Um, so write a poem with onomatopoeia in it. Um, at least one or two of those or as many as it can fit, which is a lot of fun. That is our prompt for next week. And like I mentioned, uh, next week's guest is going to be Allison Townsend. And her most recent book, The Persistence of Rivers. She's got two other books that she sent me. Really looking forward to uh, reading all of these and talking to her next week on Rattlecast number 79. That is Allison Townsend, Tuesday, February 9th, 9 p.m. Eastern. Hope to see you then. Hope we'll see you for the Critique of the Week on Friday and for Poetry Respond Live on Sunday. So uh, we've got a action-packed week as always so glad you could join us it's a lot of fun take care and i will see you soon good night